Jesus Christ, Doc, you disintegrated Einstein. Disintegrated Einstein. Einstein. Welcome to Science at the Movies, a podcast that looks at the role of science in some of our best loved and most hated movies. I'm Frida. I'm Abby. And this week's movie is Interstellar. It's only taken us over two years to finally do the movie that pretty much everyone asks for. Yeah, because it's like, how can we add anything to the noise? We have to wait for it to all die down. Yeah, exactly. That's the truth. <laughs> and <laughs> then in the week, um, we're like, dun 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 dun. Yeah. <laughs> Hear what Bye. we have to say about Interstellar. Yeah. Hey, listen, the amount of research and the effort it took me to write up this episode, <laughs> I don't really care what anyone else thinks. I'm so proud of this science. You have no idea. But before we get into it, Frida. What? How are you? Do you have anything Good. you would like to add to your science news this week? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Go on. I submitted two papers this week. Mm. And in one of them, the journal was asking for the uh, the author statements or author contribution statements in this thing called credit. Right. Credit. It's like this another fucking, uh, what's it called? Acronym. Jesus. No. <laughs> credit, author statement, contributor, roles, taxonomy. Thank you very much. And it basically has like 12 different categories of contribution. You have to select them and it's all ridiculous, right? And while I was doing this, I was reading a paper and the acknowledgement, this is what the acknowledgement of those people was. Are you ready? Yeah. JB got the idea, did the analysis and wrote the manuscript. TE assisted in the writing process, especially the more medical parts. Oh. I was like, why can't I do it like that? Why can't I say, got the idea, did the analysis? <laughs> I was like, data curation, conception, methodology. And this guy's just like, I got the idea and I did it. <laughs> I love it. That's the dream. It's just the simple, yep, this is it. I'm here. This kind of worked. It was fine. I have a... <laughs> That, that's my science news. I really enjoy sometimes there's some hidden gems in acknowledgement sections and things like that. Amazing. It makes me laugh. <laughs> when like you realize that the science papers are written by actual human beings and not machines. You're like, there yeah. you are. There's the humanity. <laughs> JB. JBTE. Good job. Good job, guys. Oh, there goes Lolly. Someone's at the door, obviously. Um, do you want my news? What's your news? I want to talk about my TikTok account. Right? Why? Frida. Let's be clear about something. So my TikTok account is going. I've got 64,000 followers nearly. I'm very proud of it. I love 64. Right? Eight times I'm, eight, baby. I'm very proud of it. I'm very, very like chuffed and excited with the work that I'm doing on it. And there's this one person following me. So I want to talk about Eric. For a minute. Eric. I think it's Eric. I think it's Eric. I hope it's Eric and not Aaron. I'm not entirely sure. Eric. Um, What was that noise? That sounded to me like the delayed sound of Lolly barking to you. Anyway. So basically what's happened is I've noticed that this person who I believe is in Ireland keeps jumping into my comment section with um 
first off, he was like, oh my God, you have a podcast too, following. So he jumped on the podcast immediately. And I was like, amazing. Thank you so much. I'm super chuffed. Then he jumps in the comment section. Uh, is Frida on TikTok? So <laughs> I was like, um, well, she's not. But like, I mean, she is on Science of the Movies account. So like we can do more stuff there. And he's like, oh my God. Okay, great. Then he jumps in again and he's like, Frida's so funny. I'm like, okay. I know Frida's so funny. She's great. Isn't she great? And then I do a live and I'm live watching uh, Event Horizon and up pops Eric. Oh my God, is Frida watching too? No, Eric. Frida's not fucking watching it too. This is just me right now. Okay. Is that okay with you? Is it okay that I do something on my own without Frida? Is that all right with you? So then next thing I get um, another comment in my lives about, about Frida and then more stuff about Frida and then a discussion about just how great Frida is. So I just want to say that my follower, Eric, is your number one fucking fan. I'm okay with it. I'm not jealous. It's fine. <laughs> All I have to say to that is A, B, C, D, E, F, G, Eric, the half a B. And I did see the comment. I did a TikTok and Eric was like, more Frida, she's so fun. And I snapshotted that and sent it to a couple of like ex-boyfriends. And I was like, I, I screenshot it to her like, and I was did like, he? his comment. And, and, he, and, and this guy goes to me, that's what I say all the time. More Frida. Oh More my Frida. God. I just thought it was so funny. I didn't realize he did that. I should have checked that now. I'm just, I think it's hilarious. So That's yeah, so there you go. Funny. So add Eric to your shout out list. Because he's not my fan. He's your fan. Eric. Okay. Okay. That's the science news done. That's the science news. So shall we get into it? Straight in? Maybe Eric was the winner of Jasmine's. Maybe Eric was. I think he's in Ireland, though. He's not over in Melbourne with oh. you. So so no Japanese hangouts for you and Eric, I'm afraid. <laughs> oh, come on, Eric. All right, let's get into Interstellar. We ready? Okay. In 2067, humankind is nearing the brink of extinction. A blight has taken hold of the crops and food is becoming scarce. Technology is no longer at the forefront of our existence. This is a world unconsumed by social media, untouched by influencer culture, and unconcerned with education. Farming takes priority. Watching Cooper, an ex-NASA pilot, navigate his farm life, we learn about some gravitational anomalies in his daughter's bedroom. Murph, being a super smart kid, sees these anomalies as Morse code. And one event, dust lines forming in a binary pattern, provides a set of coordinates leading Cooper and Murph to what is left of NASA. The remaining scientists and engineers have been searching for a way to save humanity, but time is running out. The blight is so severe it will destroy all agriculture, and the next generation born will be the last to starve. The only solution is to abandon Earth and find a new home. But how? Developing a colony ship requires the ability to manipulate gravity to be able to launch something that size. If you forgo the people and send out embryos in the hopes that new generation would survive, where would you send them? So let's return to gravitational anomalies. NASA have been monitoring these for years. Someone, somehow, has put a wormhole to another galaxy near Saturn. On the other side is a planetary system with potentially habitable worlds. The Lazarus mission sent 12 astronauts to investigate new worlds and data has come back showing the possibilities. NASA need a pilot to navigate the endurance through the wormhole, visit the possible worlds, rescue three of the astronauts, and determine the best option for a new world for humanity. Meanwhile, 
Professor Brand hopes to solve his gravity equation and find a way to launch the colony ship to set out for our new home. Or does he? Two potential homes lead to destruction. Brand's equation appears unsolvable and trust is a rare commodity. As the dust closes in on Earth, Cooper agonises over his desire to just get home, while relativity pulls him further and further away from the home and the kids he knew. In the end, Cooper accepts his fate and reluctant hero status and falls over the horizon down into the depths of Gargantua, a move that provides Murph with the first quantum data from inside a black hole, solving gravity manipulation and sending humanity on an interstellar journey to a new world. Interstellar. That was your longest summary ever. That was so long. Do you think? Do you remember my sunrise one? The sunrise that went on for like four days. (laughs) (laughs) That was long. All right, how do we do this? Movie the bus. It's a big movie, and I know you want me to get through my movie chat. So, like, just direct. Well, you're the you're the big movie nerd. No, come on, just tell me. Like, how do you feel about this movie? How did you feel about it when it came out? How did you feel about it on rewatch? When okay, okay, I so the re great question because when it came out, I was like, great, I get it, and I was like moved on with my life I sort of resisted getting into the conversation at the time and I didn't want to think too much about it I wanted to enjoy it for what it was and just move on and I and and it was when I was doing my PhD in physics and so there was a bit of chat but it was like the general feel was like cool great like we don't need to like get stuck into this too much so the rewatch I have to say I'm like kind of angry that I had to do it because I had to get really stuck into more detail that I resisted and then it's sort of like I realized a lot of it doesn't make sense like plot line storyline a lot of things started to come up that I'm like like I really resisted over analyzing this movie when it came out and now that I've analyzed (laughs) I've gone over it in detail it's like I'm a bit resentful Oh no. So I'm really confused. We'll just have to wait till the end of the movie at the ratings. I didn't want to look at it yeah, too much because okay. I like to appreciate it for what it is. So we'll see. That's It'll fair. evolve. That's Thank fair. I've been really careful with my opinions, by the way. I've written them in advance <laughs> so I wouldn't offend you. You don't have to worry about offending me. <laughs> to be honest, I, I had a like slightly off when I first watched it, I had there was things about it that I was just like, this is ridiculous. What are you talking about? This is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And it's only now having rewatched it and gone through the science of it that I'm like, this is actually okay. kind of amazing. Yeah, I was hoping for this that. This is amazing. So another thing, can I make a general comment as well? Yeah. About sci-fi films? Because as as you know, I'm not a sci-fi fan and I didn't watch a lot of sci-fi, but we've watched so much over the last two years and going over a lot of tropes that I understand space movies so much better than I did before. Yes. I don't think if you're a sci-fi fan, I don't think you understand how much like canon there is in these movies. And it's difficult to follow if you're not used to it. Like there are a lot of sci-fi ideas that don't exist. Like they're not real. <laughs> they only exist yeah. in sci-fi canon. <laughs> and the first time I watched Interstellar, I was like not following a lot of stuff. Right. And now that I've been immersed in sci-fi, I understood it so much more. A lot okay. of things. docking airlocks these are concepts that are like you don't access them as a normal person unless you're into (laughs) sci-fi that's fair that's true right yeah i mean you're right and it it is that thing there's like a lot of tropes as well that as you said i mean like one of the first early on tropes that you brought up with us was um uh airlock airlock drama drama. (laughs) 
hashtag airlock drama. Like that's the thing. It's like there's so many things that happen that um I know that if you're not interested in science fiction or if you don't like the types of movies that you have to suspend like disbelief and all that kind of stuff, then it can be really hard to just get into them. Um, I do find if you just kind of ignore certain things or just accept certain things that that, that's what exists within the realm of science fiction and sci-fi, then that means that you can just kind of enjoy it because you're not worrying so much about it being like Mm -hmm. the accuracy and everything. Um, There's one thing there's one thing that I just want to say in terms of like the style of the movie, because it's something that I forgot that they did and I really enjoyed it. And it was the opening bit where they have the documentary style. That we learn where those documentary clips come from at the end. But I just thought that was a clever way to do some exposition at the start about what was going on. Yes, I wanted to bring that up too. And my comment on that is that it gives you the understanding that they were okay in the end. So you have relief, Mm. to be honest. You left with a feeling. It it actually softens your anxiety going into the movie because, you know, humanity survived. And this became part of human history. So it's it's interesting because it allowed me personally to relax a little bit. Yeah, I see that. I, I see where you're going with that. Because it's easier to just enjoy it rather than having that like fear of how what is the outcome going to be. Um, and we know that you have some space, some space. Um, uh, or, oh, therapy. yeah, some We've space been doing paranoia. space therapy for like a year or so now. I think we've been doing pretty good. Well, what about impending doom for humanity? Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I can't help about you that. that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, shall we talk about some of the cast? Sure. I kind of wrote out just the list of the cast. So let's just talk sure. about like who's in it because there's so many people. And then if mm-hmm. there's anyone that you want to kind of pick out specifically. But of course, we'll talk about like the scientists a little bit later. Oh, fuck yeah. it. There's Eric. There's your fan. Sorry. Hey, Eric. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. To the recording, commu- to, to the people listening to the podcast version of this episode, we're also doing this live on TikTok for the first time. And we were joking about how Frida's biggest fan, Eric, who's, who follows me on TikTok, but never stops talking about Frida. <laughs> and now he's Come doing the live, so stay for we're Frida. happy for him. Okay, anyway, moving on to, we're moving on with Instellar. We, we're not interacting with the chat, sorry. <laughs> Broke the recording for Eric. I know, sorry. Not interacting with chat. Back to recording. <laughs> Fuck All right, let's talk. Stop. Let's talk through. We're cutting all of this. <laughs> Nah, let's talk cast. Let's talk cast. Cast. Let's just list through them. Okay, first off, John Lithgow and Michael Caine. I just, the existence of the two of them together just brings me joy. Michael Caine, do not go (laughs) gently into that good night. I love Michael Caine. Can I say something about John Lithgow? That he does nothing in this movie. He's a very walking cliche of a grumpy old man being like, I love him. But really when he's really funny or when he's really evil, that's when he's the best. Right. Okay. Either he's being like when he's doing comedy or when he's being terrifying Trinity killer on Dexter. Like here he was like just grumpy man. So I love him, but he didn't do. I liked the contrast. I liked the different aspect of John Lithgow that it was just kind of tame and just normal. I don't know. He can do it all. I love him. I mean, I'm I love him. Okay. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) All right. Then Matthew McConaughey. Are we talking about him here? Yeah. Well, we can talk about him later. Just in general, do you want to say anything about him? I mean, it was an amazing moment in his career. And Mm -hmm. for us as viewers to see him like that. But, you know, that's kind of... (laughs) Sorry, I made a sign with my fingers. Like, the McConaughey's like... All right. But, yeah, yeah, (laughs) he's he's great. He's great. (laughs) All right. Anne Hathaway and Jessica Chastain. 
Anne Hathaway, what I want to say about her, other than her character and everything right now, is the camera loves her face. Mm. Chris Nolan loves the way she looks and he, and he shoots her. He makes her very beautiful. And there's a lot of shots there of her face finding the light and it's magnificent. Okay. She's, she's just really telegenic. Oh, yeah. And I have obviously comments about her character. Um, okay. I, I do want to, actually, I have to say something about her as her performance. I think with this movie, there's, it's a huge spectacle and all the actors had to do was like not fuck it up. Like there's so – there's this, it's, this spectacle, it's got all this stuff there and it was like just don't fuck this. Don't, right. don't do anything to fuck this. And I feel like a couple of them fucked it. And Anne Hathaway is one of the actresses that just kind of fucking fucked it. Like, okay, really? When? How? Yes. What? What? <laughs> Same you one. want some examples? Go on, give me one. That lie. That monstrous lie. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. And we'll talk about the love thing <laughs> later, but come on. That's, yeah. There's a couple of deliveries there. Well, you're like, girl. All right. Okay, fair. You fucked it. <laughs> like, leave anyway. Anne alone. Leave Annie alone. All right. So nod to Timothy Chalamet. Mm, yeah, so cute. Didn't even register that it was him, even on rewatch. Um, Casey mm. Affleck. Yeah, we oh, um, don't have to talk about him. Okay, David O. Yellow as the school principal. Um, yeah. Yeah. Do you want to nice. say anything about it? David O. Yellow. Yeah. I just love him. No, just, just got, okay, cool. Just yeah. Good presence. Um, I loved David Gassy. Who's that? Ra- Ram- Ra- oh my god, why can't I say Romulus? Romilly. Ra- yeah, we'll we'll get there. Romilly. Romilly. <laughs> sorry, Romulus is from uh, Biodome. Romulus. <laughs> Um, TC Romulus. Oh, stop. No, we're not talking Biodome again. We're never talking about Biodome again. <laughs> I refuse. <laughs> Romulus. You are Romulus banned. <laughs> um, yeah, so David Gassi, yeah, I thought he was amazing. David. And then, of course, so we've got, look, we've got a random appearance from Topher Grace. Um, yeah, yeah. And then we yeah. have, of course, Matt Damon playing Eva Matt Watney. Matt Damon. And, As uh, in the man, man. Man, Mr. Man. Excuse me, I was proud of my evil Watney and you didn't even react. How dare you? Um, we'll get to the music soon, Eric. Don't worry about it. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Who else? Okay. Anyone, so the only other two people to mention are the voices. We've got the voices of Tars and Case. So the who voice of Tars is Bill Irwin. And uh, he's an actor who's in like Law and Order SVU. The one that got me was the voice of Case is a guy called Josh Stewart, who is Will in Criminal Minds. And I love Will from Criminal Minds. And I was like, damn, what? So there we go. That's all. I love. So is there anything you want to say about any of the cast or is there anyone else you want to add in? Yes. Okay. There's a James Redhorn. There is a James Redhorn. Okay. Who is it? There's. Brooke Smith, we have to do a video on what a James Redpond is. We'll do it some other time. Brooke Smith is the nurse at the end. It's her nurse. Okay. She's got the curly hair. She's from right. Silence of the Lambs, the one in the, you know, oh, okay. put the lotion on, on her skin. She And then she's in Grey's Anatomy. But she plays like best friends. In her shoes, best friend. The namesake, the best friend. She's also like a guidance counsellor or a counsellor sometimes. But she was an unbelievable as the counsellor. She's been in a lot of movies and you know her face. And she's a James Rebb horn. So I just want to point that out. Brooke Smith. Okay, cool. Brooke Smith. Okay. Hashtag my James Rebb horn. Mm-hmm. Right. 
So let's just I've just like let's just talk for you through a couple of bits and stuff from the movie. Bits, um, yeah, bits scenes, just bits. just some random things, and then I just want to get into it. So, well, uh, I just mentioned the music real quick. When does that yeah, happen? Yeah, sure. In bits. Bits. Okay. Cool. Now go on. Go for it. I've got my bits. Well, we'll put the music first. I have a bit of a problem with Hans Zimmer. I don't want. Uh, I think I you just brought think this up before. <laughs> Roger Sayer is the organist, and I feel like the credit really needs to go to him. And I feel like Hans Zimmer has a bit of history of getting people like Lisa Gerard for like Gladiator, and then being like, "I did it," but she did it. You know what I mean? I feel like right. he's a little bit of like a monster, and he like eats up other people's work sometimes. But the church organ, Roger Sayer was the organist they collaborated with very strongly. They didn't know what a church organ could do until he showed them. So he was a strong collaborator in this. And I mean, the music is sensational. Um, Really beautiful. And my best bits, should we go? Yeah. The docking scene is my favorite bit. The docking scene is exceptional. Everything from the moment of manual override of the hatch with Dr. Man attempting and then the actual rotation matching, every single thing of that is an exceptional scene. Um, I only just want to highlight the robots with the humor setting. Just love it. And the honesty setting as well. The, even the fa- even robots <laughs> know. Like I love that Anne Hathaway is like, I'm a robot scientist. And the and and the guy and Matthew McConaughey is like, even the robots know that humans can't have hundred percent honesty. Yeah. You <laughs> need a buffer. <laughs> okay so let's get into the themes then now i know you have your idea about themes um do you want to say a bit about what you think about the themes because i disagree with you (laughs) and i have my own very much my own ideas everybody disagrees about what the film's about because it's such a spectacle of visuals and Mm. audio stuff that in fact you're like wait but what was it about so everyone's debated like what is it about you know so whatever it's it's subject to your opinion in my it's about time it's about time in one direction and we are bound by it so all the time we have to make decisions and we know that if we're wrong we can never go back because time just pushes us forward and that's a horror show in our lives that's an absolute horror show I was thinking about this before and I was actually feeling kind of weepy thinking about it I was like throughout the whole movie they have to make decisions and we see a lot of them are wrong and it's horrific and we see the consequences of those choices directly, like the year of messages one, as they go. And it's it's like this horrible, horrible feeling of time just pushing you along and you being forced to make choices that you know could be right or wrong. And life is just a horror show, Abby. It's a horror show of making <laughs> choices. It's just that's the feeling I have, the dread of knowing that you just keep and the clock is kind of ticking the whole time. And then they, I think that the whole... Look, he made a movie to show off something beautiful, but I think also the idea of time travel in movies is often trying to explore the idea of regret and decisions and choices. Right. So I think it's more a vehicle to explore that. In, it's just much more urgent here because obviously then it's more time. Okay. So I kind of agree with you to a certain point of what you're saying, but for me, I kind of felt like the message I was taking from the movie was more about the destructive forces of nature and our lack of control. That when it comes to, like, there's two aspects to it. We have a desire to control everything, but no matter how much we advance, no matter how detailed our technology gets, no matter how much we learn, we cannot control the fate of our planet. It will eventually become inhospitable. That is a fact. There is nothing we can do about that. At some point in the future, Earth will not be a home to us anymore. If humanity survives, we have to have other solutions. Um, 
But the other side of it as well for me, I was looking at it from a perspective of humanity, isolation, loneliness, sacrifice and stubbornness. Because I kind of feel like in the face of the future, like does humanity unite for the greater good? Or does each person become more of an individual and their individual desires and needs to grasp onto something take hold? And it seems to me that like each person has a part to play in the grand scheme, but they also have a moment or a thread of stubbornness that jeopardizes everything. Um, And it's just kind of like the length that people will go to for self-preservation, even when it's damaging or hurtful to others, including the people that they love. And my kind of examples of it, just to just to go through very briefly, um, Brand wants to save humanity and knows that he can't, but he wants to keep the hope alive. I don't think that he there's an argument to say that he doesn't tell the truth about the equation to save himself. But I think he doesn't tell because he wants to keep people hopeful. He doesn't want to remove that hope from them. But like Cooper is willing to help, but will sacrifice everything to get home to his daughter. Amelia wants to help, but will sacrifice the mission for the man that she loves. Man initially wants to help and goes on that one way mission. But then when he's met with the isolation and loneliness, he is willing to sacrifice humanity to save himself. Uh, Murph is working tirelessly to solve an equation, but she's unwilling to forgive and look objectively. She holds a personal grudge the whole way through that affects her engagement with the mission. And Tom works the farm because it's his job and it's what's needed, but he's willing to sacrifice his wife and his kids' health to do um, what he thinks is just like keep working the farm. Romilly, to me, is arguably the only one who is a selfless character who will do what needs to be done for the mission and humanity. Yeah, but he's two-dimensional. We don't get into him at all. We don't know anything yeah, about him. Yeah, that's true. But um, I think it's no a one... sad thing. It's kind of a sad thing what you're saying like with the time thing, but it also is a sad thing to me where I just kind of look at it and I go, what it's showing me is that humanity will not come together in our time of need. A few smart people might figure it out, but we're not going to band together to solve everything. It's Do about you? human fallibility. Yes, mm. because it, yes, we, yes, we have these dreams, but it's always a balance between like our aspirations and our present and we're fallible. You know, like that, it's just yeah. human fallibility. At the end of the day, like scientists or people trying to make big breakthroughs, we're humans, we have families, we have other interests as well. And people that want to do big things and people want to save the world always have to have this sort of balance between all of that and actually like the people around you. And that's a trade-off, that's all. I think it's, we're just fallible, we're humans. That's all humanity, all those things yeah. are just, that's, that's, the re, that's the human condition. She's in love, and so what can she do? That's a human condition. He wants this, but his family's I, sick. And, I and understand. It's like no, I do. I understand that. But then it's also like, how, how do you learn how to look outside of yourself? How do you, in those instances, realize that it's not about you? When, when the risks are that big, when the stakes are that high, to make it about you is very selfish. You, mean you, me, my wife, my children, my family, that's not me. Like we as humans are only really capable but it's, of thinking about a limited no, be, number of people. But she's not thinking right? about her family. She's not thinking about Who? Brand back home or anyone else. Yeah. She's thinking about just going and checking that the guy that she's in love with is alive. Oh, yeah. Okay. Cooper is know. thinking about consistently just thinking about just getting back to Murph. It doesn't matter. He's just like, I have to get back to Murph. I have to get. He's thinking about. Yes, he's thinking about Murph. But in the scheme of everything else, he's thinking only about the one thing that he thinks he wants to do instead of recognizing that if he went back to Murph, then like there is no future for Murph. 
do you know what you're being very unfair because the humans we are humans we I'm are not saying no I'm not saying that you can remove for, humanity from it I'm not saying that you shouldn't remove humanity what I'm saying is when the stakes are that high to not look objectively at the whole of the problem and the people that you're around and how that will affect the mission and the whole of humanity and everything else and to make your actions centered on your own personal desires is detrimental to the mission and it causes all these problems and all these things go wrong because people keep making selfish decisions that is what happens when you send humans on these missions because that is what humans send do tars and that's case the whole out. thing <laughs> Exactly. You have to send robots to do it because robots won't do that. Because the thing is, if Anne Hathaway kind of has in the back of her mind that it might be failure, he's like, maybe I just want to go with the person that I love. And yeah. it's like, that's the trade-off that we have. It's like, yes, if we, we all, want to save if, the world, you, but, yeah. but I also just want to do whatever I want and what feels good. And I feel like that, that that's that's just a human condition. Yeah. You want to save the world, but what happens if you send a bunch of humans off to do it? This is what fucking happens. That's what happens. Yeah, that's true. That's the lesson from the movie, maybe. Yeah, if you want to, if you're going to go out, then you want to go out in the place that you're happy. So I guess maybe that just means that none of them think that it's actually um, real. <laughs> none of them, none of them think that they can actually do it. Basically, yeah, is, it seems yeah. to be the lesson. Brand just wants to have sex. Bless her. Right, let's move into tropes. <laughs> tropes. Okay, I have yes. some. What? You have some. Okay, I've just got the one, but it's a big one that really annoys me. So go on. What's yours? Three. Go. Disobeying orders, the tidal wave scene. They're all like, they're acting like there's no mm. commander. That's a bit of a trope. She just does, does what she wants. Okay, whatever. That, you know what? Just this week, the ISS released footage of people doing a spacewalk, repairing something. And the second they were told that they're probably up there just to do that one thing. The second they were told to abandon, they went straight back. No fuss. So yeah. that is a film trope. Disobeying orders. That's yeah. my number one. Should I keep going? Yeah, I do. Number two, intolerable science speak. If gravity (laughs) is an oyster, the singularity is a pearl within or whatever. (laughs) Jesus. And my third one is the say that again trope. Say that again. Say that again. They didn't bring us back to change the past. Say that again. (laughs) They didn't bring us back to change the past. You gotta yeah. you gotta do a little bit of repeat sometimes to make sure that the general what <laughs> no, like audience <laughs> doesn't it's miss not the point. That, it's not to repeat it. It's that it's that he says something and it's like say that one more yeah. time, and then you're like they they didn't bring us back here. We <laughs> brought ourselves back here, etc. You know, it's it's we've talked. So I disagree. We're gonna talk about that later, but I disagree with that anyway. Um, not not with you saying it about a trope, like what's what's being said in the movie. Okay, so my trope is something that actually it was going to be one of my what the fucks because uh, it really, really bugs me. The entire petulant, over-the-top, angry, stubborn child Murph that extends into adulthood. Oh, it's the one thing about the movie that to me just lets it down entirely. Because the fact that she literally goes to the lengths of being like, did you leave me here, daddy? 
Did you leave me here to die, daddy? And it's like, what the, what do you mean? Of course he didn't. You have very, it's very clear from the beginning, the relationship that you have. The idea that you would even entertain the thought then as a full grown, supposedly brilliant theoretical physicist would actually entertain those thoughts in your mind as a 40 year old woman is infuriating to me. It's ridiculous. I wrote this. Why is she so angry all the time apart from the fact that she has red hair? Also, why is she so angry at him when she knows she's been educated? Presumably, Brand went immediately to get her to start educating her so she would have known everything. Why are you so angry still? No, there's really. literally no reason for her to be angry. You no, know, there's no reason for her to be angry. Like this whole character is being driven by something which makes no sense. Yeah. The whole character is being driven by something which sh doesn't make any sense. There's no reason for her to not have him talk to him. Yeah, exactly. As a child, maybe, because the excuse is you're a child. Yeah, and you're, you're a bit, yeah. But they're like after two years to still refuse to like talk to him. Like understanding yeah, it, how much pain, I, like when he's leaving and he's saying it to her, he's like, please don't leave me like this. Please don't make me leave like this. To know then, you would know the pain that you have caused by mm -hmm. like refusing to speak to him. To just like, uh, it's just, I don't know, I find the yeah. whole thing ridiculous. And I just think they could have told the story in the exact same way without her having had to have anger. She could have had jet like that that entire bit of dialogue where it's like, um, did you did you leave us here? Did you know it was fake? Did you leave us here to die? Like could have just been more like she could have twisted it around and been like, I need to tell you something like they didn't tell you the truth. Um, they made you leave us like there's just a way you could have turned it around. Mm. And it's just. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was just yeah, very. That relationship was not, it, there was nothing there. They had justice for Jessica Chastain. They gave her nothing but to be pissed off at her dad and then a few other moments. But what was their relationship? I, I we had some, like, it, nah. Yeah. Nah. I I, it would make more sense as well. The idea then when she goes back and she discovers the stuff at the end, it would make more sense if she was always going back to that room because always looking for that connection with her dad. It's just, I don't know. It was just, anywho. That was she just something like that, someone, yeah, the, yeah. I didn't get the love between them. It was just, yeah, honestly, he, he, she would have caused him a lot of pain. But it didn't make any sense. I don't want to yeah. act like they were real people because the relationship made no, no sense. I do I have just another think, quote. Like, as an Can adult. I do another? <laughs> but, like, wait, but as an adult, as you said, as an adult, as, as an educated adult who learns the story about what's happening, what NASA are trying to do and what mission he was sent on, the idea that you would still hold a grudge instead of understanding exactly what was happening is just crazy. Go on, what's your quote? Um, yeah, I do. I, she, he missed out. Like I, I, I am. I am. I did just read a live comment, and someone's like, "That's what made the tears flow." Half when he when he saw the twenty four years of messages, and he missed all of that. Yeah, I don't think one contradicts the other. Like it I doesn't think take that, that away. He, he doesn't take it away. Missing your child's life. I mean, that's what I was talking about before. The 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 the, the studying relentless uh, like traffic of time, and you having to be in that fucking lane is just, it's horrifying. Mm. And the fact that he misses all of that, it doesn't, does nothing to do with their relationship and why she was, you know, upset. You she would have, have known that where he was. She would have known that he was thing. off. She would have known it was not in his control that he wasn't talking to her. She knew she was being educated by the best. This is just the, the in the beginning, the relationship between them, they kind of try to build this like daughter, father, scientist kind of relationship thing. And he's like, Yeah, it just cut out all this me looking for it. I've written it down for myself. I just have to find 
Where is it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, The dad's like, you got to recall the facts, analyze, get to the how and the why, then report your conclusions. Deal? Deal, daddy. <laughs> Good. Also, right before that, John Lithgow, like, she was like, it's a ghost, it's a poltergeist. And, and John Lithgow was like, nodded, like, you better deal with that. So, <laughs> and he was like, got to get the facts, we got the thing, got to get the thing. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> We've gone off track here somewhere and I'm going to reel us in and we're actually finally going to talk about science. science. <laughs> the one All thing right, that I'll I didn't want to have to do was have a huge massive edit to do before starting to talk about the science section. <laughs> I've not really saved myself that, but here we go. Right. In terms of science as a theme, this is an epic science movie. It is exceptionally thought out and detailed in the story. The background, the visuals, as well as the details we don't see on the screen. Before we talk about the science, let's talk about Kip Thorne. Now, normally we mention science consultant if the movie had one. This goes beyond that. Kip Thorne is an executive producer of this movie. He, alongside with Linda Obst, developed the treatment, pitched it to Hollywood. He wrote the science for the movie, modelled the dynamics, and then literally wrote the book on the science of the movie. So most of what I have to say about the science, whether explicit in the movie or background explanations that never described it um, explicitly in the movie, comes directly from Kip Thorne himself, from his book. And I will be taking no questions or comments on the validity of the science, the equations, the plausibility. Please direct all queries to Professor Kip Thorne himself. Thank you very much. Okay, go. So, okay. I've broken this up into five sections and I've labeled it weirdly cause, effect, solution, journey and results. Okay, so let's go through each one of them and just talk about them a bit. So let's start with the cause, right? The cause is the blight. Okay, first off, I can't because I think Frida's just laughing at the fucking comments instead of being engaged in the recording right I'm now. I'm engaging. So stop? stop being snarky. <laughs> stop being snarky. I'm very clever. I can do both. <laughs> All right. Okay. So science of interstellar. Section one, the cause. We're talking about blight. Blight is the general term for any disease in a plant caused by a pathogen. And if there is a question from anyone about whether a blight would cause a population decline, let's talk about the Great Famine. Uh-oh. Or, as people outside of Ireland like to call it, the Potato Famine. The Great Famine in Ireland in the 1840s was caused by a potato blight. A fungus-like a fungus-like microorganism infected the potato crops and due to a number of factors, such as single crop dependence, colonialism, and the main affected areas being mostly Irish language dominated, it had a detrimental effect on Ireland and the population. Over one million people died, two, min two million people emigrated, and the world has never forgotten about Ireland and potatoes. The main problem in Ireland was that it happened at a time when we were under British rule, when the majority of the land was owned slash taken by British landlords living in Britain and collecting rent from the people whose ancestors used to own that land. Anyway, a lot of the produce and livestock was exported out of Ireland to England. 
And as the majority of the Irish at that time were being exploited by the landlords and living in poverty, there came a dependency on potato crops for food. When the blight arrived in 1844-ish, the 1845 crop crop loss was around one third to a half. By 1846, it was almost three quarters. And this is when starvation began. For the next two years, even with the blight mostly gone, the yields were really low, so still not enough food to go around. The English government did very little to help with relief, and eventually, under new leadership, they halted all relief altogether. They also refused to stop the export of food to England, so the food and livestock not affected by the blight was shipped out of Ireland, while the Irish people were left to starve to death and watch their crops die. It wasn't until 1847 that they started to give aid through workhouses and soup kitchens. But they left the cost on the landlords who decided that they could reduce how much they had to provide if they just evicted their tenants. So in 1847, the Times reported, Britain has allowed in Ireland a mass of poverty, disaffection and degradation without parallel in the world. It allowed proprietors to suck the very lifeblood of that wretched race. So blight is no joke. Well... I never knew if it was the potato famine because there uh, it was only potatoes to eat or if there was not even potatoes to eat. So I didn't know any of that. There I was, think that's, people, that's I, I really crazy. wanted to bring it up because I think people in general, when they talk to Irish people about the potato famine, I think people think that what it means is what you like that, what you said, like that we just ate potatoes, basically. That like we were just obsessed with potatoes and that was it. And we just ate a load of potatoes. Um, Instead of it being that the reality is that we... Um, you only had potatoes because of poverty and then you didn't even have potatoes because of blight. Yeah, exactly. That, like The whole potato famine thing wasn't because the only thing we could eat was potatoes. It was because the way that uh, it was dealt with in terms of what was ac- accessible to poor people in Ireland or just basically Irish people in general was potato crops. They were simple to grow. Mm-hmm. They were um, yeah. cheap to to plant. Um, so it meant that Irish people had to rely on potatoes for food. And then when the blight happened, there was no food. Basically. So, yeah, it's a very sad story. Yeah. But I just it's thought it was interesting sad. to bring it up because it gets to highlight like the effect of blight in terms of when we talk about it affecting crops. And in terms of what we're used to, it's affecting singular crops. But the yes. idea for the blight in the movie is slightly different. And it stems from a luncheon a luncheon that Kip Thorne had at the Anathema at Caltech with a bunch of scientists and experts in biology and all sorts of things. Um, So basically they had a big discussion about what kind of ideas could, like how you could possibly explain the blight in general uh, in the movie. So the thing is, we don't really grow our own food anymore. It is a little bit more common for some individuals in terms of like allotments and stuff like that. But as a nation or like as a global society, we depend on global systems, ones that grow and distribute food for us so we can then buy it. So while the ideas around a universal blight are unlikely, it's not hard to imagine how disaster like that could affect the global system. Basically, if you wipe out our plant life, you wipe out our food source. And it's not even about destroying all plant life. Just attacking the grasses in the world will be enough because this attacks both the basis of our agriculture in terms of crop production as well as taking away the food source for livestock. 
did you know, Frida, that 50% of the food grown on Earth is destroyed by pathogens? Oh, really? 50%? It seems really high, right? That's upsetting. This is really interesting. Uh, I have a lot of thoughts, but when... Yeah. I'm accumulating my thoughts. This is okay. fascinating stuff. Let me, yeah, let me just finish this little bit and yes. then we'll chat about it. So blight types. Now, they're specialist and generalist. A specialist blight will attack one species and be up to 99% lethal. A generalist blight can attack a number of species, but it's not anywhere near as lethal. So one of the points that arrived from Kip's luncheon was that while it's not been seen before, it's not hard to imagine a case where a lethal specialist pathogen becomes a lethal generalist, potentially spreading through insects, carrying it to other species. And then if this lethal generalist attacked chloroplasts, which is one of the basic properties of plant life and photosynthesis, then our world would essentially become a desert landscape. Unlikely, but not outside the realms of possibility. How do you feel? Um, I did know about the American chestnut tree was decimated by blight and I read about that in the overstory and so it was very interesting to see how blight is like this specific target, something very specific and it can spread over an entire continent. Mm. Boom. All the chestnuts were killed out and that was a source of so many peoples. It wasn't just food. It was um, because they used the wood. Uh, it was it, shade. I don't know, fruit. Like there was also meant and, and from one end to the other end of the continent. So I didn't know the idea that it can evolve into a generalist. That's really interesting. And it's really interesting about the the thing that you said about the potato famine and the fact that it's like there's crops, but then there's politics that govern us, you know? Mm-hmm. So it isn't just about the food dies and we die. It's like we're all sort of connected through politics, right? So it's like more complicated than that. And so... You, and, and the whole idea of that, it's almost like the blight came and the Irish people were left to die. Do you know? Yeah. Like people not intervening. And, and That's, well, and, just to say, because as you said about the chestnut thing, the, I, I believe, and I'm not entirely sure about this, I would have to double check it, but I do believe that the initial blight, the form that uh, like affected the uh, potatoes in Ireland at the time, originated in Mexico and was like, traveled through the US to Ireland but it also traveled through Europe so there was a lot of countries in Europe that were affected by this a lot of other places but the reason why it's so synonymous with Ireland is because as you said because of the politics of it that caused the like governing British to not intervene and led to such mass deaths and mass uh, emigration from Ireland because the people didn't have any choice any other options yeah and the woes of the Irish people only sort of increased from there. And I think it's worth for people to, to educate themselves on that mm. um, because it's just weird how people can have such a reputation that Irish people have for no reason. People laugh and make fun and everything like that and nobody bothers to educate themselves on the way that the unique way Irish people have suffered and also confuse them and I'm guilty with sort of white colonialists, which they aren't. Oh, so, the, um, the amount of time. Listen, I had it recently, actually. I had a... Um, I did a post about something and someone someone commented and they said maybe I should lose that Texan accent. And 
I like I did a kind of a response about it just about because I was like, first of all, I just think it's really funny to be like someone say like that I have a Texan accent, whatever. But it was also just like, I don't expect you to understand the Irish accent, but at least like recognize then like the problem for me was I did a post responding to it and I just said, um, excuse me, how dare you? I'm Irish. And what I got was a bunch of people jumped in the comments asking me, like, were you born in Ireland? Or like, is this a, like Irish ancestry? Is this or that? Whatever. And I was just like, excuse me. Don't you now jump in here and like try to take away my Irishness from me or something for some weird thing. Like, I get that there's a lot of people out there who claim Irish ancestry, but like, it's a ve- it's weird to me. And, and like you said, though, when people kind of go like, oh, but, you know, like Ireland and England is the same place. And it's like, it really isn't. And you really need to understand why it's not. And you really need to understand why you actually cannot equate the two. Like, it's not OK to equate the two. So no, it's not okay. Know. I had that conversation. Somebody was like English Irish, what's the difference? And and I was like, no, like let me tell you a few things that I've read from reading a few books. You know, I haven't yeah. read much, but I, it doesn't take a lot to start getting into it. It does also remind me, like just tangential to this, but relevant is this sort of a, the HIV slash AIDS epidemic is that there was something targeting a group of people and for political reasons that was left to decimate that population and it is tantamount to genocide and it's it so so in in this story it's like people dying out it's like yes because of crops but also because of politics and shitty governance Um, yeah also gets involved and it is easy to see that humans can have a situation like that and that's why it's so important we have places like CSIRO with the food technology and all of that you know working day and night to try to understand how we can how we can um, survive these sorts of changes in climate but my question is how did they how did they get food in the end how did they solve it in the end what happened to the food how did they get food they didn't tell us well they they left so and where's the food from? That's an exceptionally good question. Let's talk about it later. <laughs> okay. Actually, I'm going to answer your question now. Because the reality is, is eventually the blight spreads. Eventually the crops die. But throughout the movie, the, there's still crops. There's still living crops. Like, I mean, his, his, there's still lots of farming going on. There's still lots of food there that is sustaining humanity. But I guess like whatever form this blight takes, is it something in Earth, something within the atmosphere of Earth? So I guess maybe they they must be able to isolate and protect certain crops to get them onto the space station and create some sort of hydroponic system on the space station to grow the crops, some sort of a um, farm that doesn't require or that isn't affected by whatever it is that's affecting things on Earth. Um you mean like it's isolated in some way? Sphere? But I also don't understand why they're not able to do that just underground on, in, Earth. on Earth. Anyway, that was something on I Earth. didn't really understand. But look, we, we just take it. It's Frida, <laughs> we've a lot of science to get through. We just take no, it. I didn't know. You're rushing me. You're rushing me. I can't. I'm sorry. I have to say, they figured out how to do a closed system, a biosphere, which we went through in the episode, the last last episode that we've done. We went through this and how hard it is. So they solved it. If they can do it in a closed system in space, they can do it in a closed system on Earth. They could keep the but thing. But I guess why maybe... they have to go to space? Well, I suppose If they maybe... solved it. Because of exploration. I, that's what I thought. I was like, because of exploration, because they know that they'll have to find another planet eventually. So positioning themselves near Saturn, near the wormhole, so that they could have easy access and so they can keep exploring. Maybe. That, that was what I comforted myself. Okay, that's great. But they great. didn't tell us. Okay, I'm okay. happy you're comforted. Let's move on. Thank you. <laughs> 
Right, so, like I said, the effect. We had the cause, now we've got the effect. The effect is that Earth is no longer a habitable place. Humankind cannot survive on the surface of the planet. It's unclear if they could survive underground either. It seems like they can't, and that's why they have to leave Earth. The tests being conducted at NASA appear to show the blight as unstoppable. Maybe even if they were growing crops in controlled hydroponic farms underground, they still wouldn't be able to stop them or something. Now, there is no solution on Earth that will solve the issue and allow humanity to survive. The only way forward that NASA can see is to leave Earth. There are three problems with this. Number one, where to go. There is no evidence so far that there are any habitable worlds for us to explore um, out there. We've surveyed only a small portion of our galaxy and found solar systems and stars plenty. But from this survey, we have detected so far 4,000 exoplanets, but only 16 of them are in their star's habitable zone. While that means that they have the potential to harbour life, there's no guarantee that they can. So how would you choose where to go? Because you would want a system like TRAPPIST-1 or something, so somewhere that has multiple planets in the habitable zone so you have more possibilities. Problem number two is how to get there. Our nearest star is Proxima Centauri and it's 4.2 light years away. That's 39 trillion kilometers roughly. So the only objects so far that we have sent beyond our solar system are the Voyager probes. And with the technology available to us at the time the Voyager was sent out, it would take Voyager 73,000 years to get there. 73,000 years. To our nearest neighbor. And we would need to go much further than that to find planets that could potentially be habitable. So realistically, we need faster than light travel. And there are only two ways that can come. Warp drive or wormholes. Number three problem is how we leave Earth. This is the biggest issue posited by the movie. Even if we have the tools to build spaceships large enough to take the remaining people from Earth, how do we launch them? We've talked about launch costs before, but this is beyond the simplicity of needing fuel. That may be scarce anyway, given the like climate of what's happening in the movie. And it goes to like the sheer size of the object and the acceleration required to move it from the surface of the planet. So a standard rocket today to lift off, like just the lift off boosters alone, require 11,000 pounds of fuel per second. That's 2 million times the fuel burned by an average car. And that goes for at least 60 seconds. Um, and that's just for like a tiny rocket that only holds three people-ish. So what about massive space stations filled with the remains of humanity? So they are our problems posited by the movie. Where to go, how to get there, how to get off Earth. Thoughts, Frida? I do not understand the whole we have to lift it off the ground thing the first time I watched it. Uh, maybe it was only the second time I watched it that I understood that that was the problem. And I think it's really funny. Like, it's a funny problem. It's like, <laughs> how do we get it off the ground because of gravity? And it's like, we must solve gravity. And I'm really looking forward to you explaining how, what that means and how you use the gravity that you solve to get the thing off the ground. I'm just waiting. But I think, okay. I think that it's very compelling. Okay. And how did they do it? Okay, well, then how they did it, let's talk about the solution. Right, we have to get a little bit more technical here, so we're going to all like take a deep breath and just get into it. Now, the solution is actually presented to humanity. One day, gravitational anomalies are detected on Earth, kicking off a search by NASA for their source. 
Now, Kip Thorne in the book suggests that it would be in the form of gravitational waves that distinctly fall outside of the everyday detections on Earth. So it would be determined that these waves are coming from a wormhole that appeared near Saturn. Upon investigation, it is found that the wormhole is a stable gateway to another galaxy. On the other side, there are a number of potentially habitable planets orbiting a black hole. So, put simply, they just need to figure out how to get colony ships off Earth, head through the wormhole, and find the most habitable planet on the other side. Easy, right? I feel like you doubt me. Sounds easy to me. Well, Frida, it all comes down to gravity. Are you surprised? Gravity is a fundamental force. Now, some people will argue with about this because of Einstein's description, which we'll get to in a minute. But overall, gravity acts on objects as a force. The attractive force between two objects, to be exact. This attractive force presents itself as the objects falling towards each other in space. The rate at which the objects fall depends on their mass. The lighter you are, the faster you will fall towards a heavier mass. The falling effect comes from the curvature of space-time. Einstein found that three-dimensional space is warped by massive bodies. And you can think of it like a large object creating a well in space. You fall into the well, but to get out of the well, you need to put in energy. If you don't put in enough energy to move your mass out of the well, then you'll just fall back down. Frida's demonstrating gravity. Oh no, did you just do your... We haven't talked about wormholes yet. Stop. Sorry. (laughs) Okay. We describe our classical universe via Newton's laws of motion. The problem is that Newton's laws have a few situations where they fail. They fail in situations where things move very, very fast. Things that are very, very large, such as the universe. And places where gravity is really, really intense inside black holes. In these instances, we need Einstein's relativistic laws of physics. Then there's also the problem that Newtonian laws fail at the very small. So for this, we need the quantum laws of physics brought to us by Bohr, Bohr, Heisenberg and Schrodinger. The biggest problem, and the problem for Professor Brand, is that the relativistic laws and the quantum laws are incompatible. In places where gravity is intense, and quantum fluctuations are strong, they predict different things. One of these places is at the centre of a black hole. So in order for Professor Brand to find a way to lift the space stations off Earth, he must find a way to manipulate gravity, to allow humanity to escape the well that the mass of Earth forms in space. He can do this if he can determine a law of quantum gravity and solve his equations. He cannot do this without studying the information contained inside the singularity of a black hole. Professor Brand knows this, and he knows that there's no way for him to get the data. This is why I believe Murph says it's all a sham, and Brand always knew that plan A would never work. How do you feel so far? Yeah, I understand the idea of a theory that governs everything from the big to the small and it predicts the correct things based on our observations. I don't understand what they're getting from the hole that they plug into an equation and then how you use that to lift something off the ground. Okay. Let's keep going. Are you going to get there? Yeah, I'm going to get there. Are you going to get there? I am going to get there. 
So keep going. Okay. Before we do that, we have to acknowledge, right? Okay, so that's the general kind of thing. That's the general problem in terms of brands equation, unification of um, relativity, like of general relativity with quantum mechanics and figuring out a way to manipulate gravity. Now, the thing is, Brand didn't know at the time that humanity had some guardian angels. So in order to talk about humanity's guardian angels, don't you fucking roll your eyes at me. <laughs> we need to talk. We need to talk about bulks, brains, and other dimensions. Okay. In 1984, Michael Green and John Schwartz, while studying the potential laws of quantum gravity, found that their ideas worked if we view our universe as a membrane that resides in a higher dimensional hyperspace. In physics, this is referred to as a brain and a bulk. So our universe is the brain, spelled B-R-A-N-E, okay? Our universe is the brain. And then the bulk is this higher dimensional hyperspace that our universe is contained within. Are you with me? I don't understand what any of this means. Does anybody understand what any of this means? Okay. Does anybody? Okay. Yeah, going. like many, know. many physicists out there who work in this understand, Frida. <laughs> okay. Okay, so. All right. The ideas of a quantum law of gravity work if we as three-dimensional beings exist within a space that has a higher dimension. Yes, yes. We've talked about this a little bit before We've in Avengers. About it, yeah. Yeah, we talked yes. about like different. So let's let's just let me do this like okay, let's talk through this and then we'll come back to the concept again a little bit more. Okay, so our universe is a brain embedded in a bulk that has one time dimension and nine space dimensions. So the bulk itself would have six more spatial dimensions than our three. This is we're talking superstring theory. This is essentially okay. this is what superstring theory is. We cannot access or see these extra dimensions, but they influence our brain, our universe, the fabric of the universe that okay. like, we exist within. So, and we don't have the technology to design experiments that could measure the effects of this, um, these other dimensions, should they exist. Now, for practical purposes and reasons I cannot get into right now, uh, sometimes these six other dimensions are just treated as one other dimension and in the movie that's what they do they treat it as one extra spatial dimension to our standard three so we are three dimensional beings in a three dimensional brain that exists inside four dimensional space called a bulk okay are you with me yes yes we experience a fourth dimension as time Yes, Is but we're talking we about from Avengers. We're talking about having a fourth dimension of space. Okay, but we can't experience it because we are contained within three dimensions. But our yes, three-dimensional yes. existence is contained inside a dimension of space that is four-dimensional. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so we can't perceive the fourth dimension of space, um, but. And this is what comes with uh, string theory and all this other stuff is that um, the while we can't perceive the fourth dimension of space, the one thing that can travel across the different dimensions is gravity. Is love. 
Oh, yeah, sorry. No. Gravity. <laughs> right? So that's the idea. So we can't interact ourselves with this other, like with a higher dimensional space. We can't engage with it. We can't perceive it. Um, but the one thing within our universe that would theoretically be able to move through all these other dimensions, these other spatial dimensions, is gravity. And in terms of theory, this is what would explain why gravity is so weak in comparison to the other forces of nature because it is spread out across these other dimensions. And that's basically what string theory is saying. Yes, Frida. Um, when you say travel across, does that mean that we can out, like we can be impacted by the gravity of another thing that we can't directly experience in any other way? Like, what do you mean travel? You mean the waves? If some, it's if there's that, an event, that gravity thing, is gets, spread it sends out. a wave across. Uh, well, there would have to be some like portals, such as a wormhole, maybe. Uh, but the basically the idea that um, gravity itself would be stronger. That if there wasn't, the theory goes that if um, if there wasn't higher dimensions, then gravity would be stronger. We would expect, we would um, feel a high, stronger gravitational force that it would be comparable to the other forces in nature. But because it's so weak, then it means that gravity and its force is just spread out across the other dimensions. So I it can access have gravity. Personally, I feel. Yeah, I mean, I feel good about it. it too. <laughs> I feel fine about but the it's... amount of gravity we have. <laughs> It's basically saying that the idea is that gravity can access the other dimensions, that it is this one property that exists in all the dimensions. Um, whereas like everything else in our three-dimensional space would not be able to travel. Uh, okay, right. I see that it's almost like it speaks yeah. the language of every single dimension. It's like yeah. JavaScript. <laughs> You don't know what I'm visualizing in my head. Like you, you have no idea how I'm visualizing this. Yeah, you, this. like it's literally there's none of us can visualize happening. it. It's crazy. But there's it's... stuff in my head right now that you, as as you're talking, there's a picture in my head, and you don't need. To, yeah, it's it's working. Okay, keep going. Okay, so now we get to like the idea. Let's come back to Brand's equation. Okay, so gravitational anomaly is something that doesn't fit our understanding of the laws of the universe. And as Kipthorne wrote in his book, it would be pretty quick for Brand to determine that the gravitational anomalies being detected on Earth must be coming from the bulk, from this other dimension. Um, why do we care about this? Because the bulk field can control the strength of gravity, as proposed by this idea in the movie, okay? Now, when we look at Newton's equations for gravitational acceleration, we have the gravitational constant G, capital G, yeah? This constant value controls the overall strength of the gravitational pull caused by objects of different mass. The overall Sorry, warping... Sorry, I need a second, I need a second. It's very hard to follow. Okay. Do you mind just start that bit again from the beginning? I'm like trying to... Um, the bulk beings can, okay. can manipulate gravity. Right. In our dimension. Okay. The overall strength of the gravitational pull, right? When we look at Newton's equations for gravitational acceleration, there is a gravitational constant G, capital G, standard in all of our equations. It's constant value, yeah? This constant value controls the overall strength of the gravitational pull depending on objects of different mass. When you look at the equation, the mass of the object and how far you are from the object are the two variables that can change, G stays constant, right? 
the overall warping of space and time is proportional to this capital G gravitational constant. If the bulk exists, then Einstein's relativistic laws say that this constant G value is allowed to change. Okay. So Professor Brand may be thinking that the bulk field could control the strength of gravity by changing the constant value G. Because you have gotcha. the same mass, you have the same radius, but if you change G, then the gravitational acceleration changes, right? Yes, okay. Okay, so we're talking about changing the gravitational constant value. If they dropped the moon close enough <laughs> to the Earth, they could lift anything up off the ground. We learned that moonfall. Yes. Just makes this it makes the spaceship go to the moon. Okay. okay. So they so so now okay we can manipulate the G, but now how how does that happen? You'll tell okay. me. Okay. So yes, Brand is trying to find the right form for his equation that will allow him to predict how to control the gravitational constant. And um, it turns out that his solution is correct, but it's only half the answer. At the end of the day, if Brand can figure out what the quantum gravity laws are for the bulk, then he can deduce and extract from his equation or what the form of his equation needs to be that will allow him to control the gravitational anomalies and use this to control G and lift the colonies off the Earth. With what though? Because if the, like by reducing by reducing the value of G so that they don't feel the pull to the Earth anymore, like but IRL there is, a, there is an entire physically reduce okay there is an entire chapter in Kip Thorne's book about this, but I really don't want to get into it. Okay, but basically the idea is that yeah, you you control what the gravitational constant is so you control how much gravitational pull or how much warping there is for earth you reduce the warping so the ships are able to leave the surface and there's because you change because you change the gravitational field he explains how you literally physically change the field he explains this in his book he just explains. He, he explains. Ba- he explains basically an idea that the idea is based around if you can change the value of the gravitational constant, then you reduce the effects of the gravitational field, which reduces the effects of the warping due to the mass. I so get if you that. don't have How a stronger do do warping, it? How do you change the value of g in the physical world? You have what to understand. You, you have to understand quantum gravity. Okay. You have to understand quantum fluctuations in quantum gravity and then you have to use the same methods the to solve Einstein. The same methods of the way that Einstein's rel- like relativistic equations are solved. You can use the same methods to solve the equation to determine what the correct form is. Um, but you have to know and understand quantum gravity. So I can't explain to you. How do you, you beca- do it? Because we don't know quantum gravity so we can't explain that. <laughs> But how did they do it? What did they turn? What did they change in the physical world that made the made the effect of gravity they control, change? It was controlled through the bulk field, through the higher dimensional space. Oh. The bulk oh. field controls the gravitational constant. So they did it in the end. I don't know. 
They did it through a Okay, bit. there is so much more science to get through. <laughs> okay, go. This, no, this is, but like, I'm just saying, this is a point that is like, it's very, very difficult to explain what exactly they could have done or to posit like an idea based on what exactly they could have turn, done, turned, dials, knobs, changed. Because at the end of the day, you have to have a law of quantum gravity to know what would need to be done. And we don't have a law right. of quantum gravity, so. But they put it in a movie for all of us. So we got to try to understand this. Yes, but like, this, but this is what I'm saying. I'm saying it's like, it's literally described as the bulk field controls the gravitational constant. And if you can define the laws of quantum gravity and determine how to control the bulk fields, then you can determine how to change the gravitational constant and reduce the warping effects on yeah. Earth and allow them to be able to um, move they them did it. away. Human Earth solved it. They did it for us. In the end. Okay, humans the did it. Humans the, did it. Put it in. The, humans did it eventually. It went in yes. the watch. Okay, yes. next topic. Okay. Oh my god. Okay. <laughs> this is like this is. Why I was so stressed about this movie because I was like, I I was so careful. It's taken me so long to write this. <laughs> I was like so stressed about it. I was Very so difficult. proud of it, and now I'm so worried. <laughs> Okay, going. so where was I? Where was I? Okay, so okay, so in terms of the movie, if if we if Bran can figure out what the quantum gravity laws are for the bulk, then he can deduce and extract from his equation what uh, the form that his equation needs to be to tell him how to control gravitational anomalies and use this to lift the colonies off Earth. Um. So let's take a minute now to talk about warped space and time. Starting with black holes. How do black holes form? Now, we'll have all heard of like the standard kind of concept and idea. A sufficiently heavy star collapses and forms a black hole. But do people fully kind of know what this means? Because in this form, basically two things can happen. A star will burn their fuel and then collapse to form a neutron star or a black hole. The neutron star has a highly dense mass. Atomic nuclei are packed in so much that the star itself is almost purely nuclear matter. But black holes are different. Black holes do not contain any matter. I'll say it again. Black holes do not contain matter. They are totally and completely warped space and time. So the way it's described, and this is a quote, if the implosion is precisely spherical, the imploding star must create a black hole around itself and then create a singularity at the whole centre and then get swallowed into the singularity so that no matter is left behind. The resulting black hole is made entirely from warped space and time. How do you feel? Um, do you know... Do you want to know? I mean, the what's in my head? Super <laughs> random. I don't know. Go on, go on. I was just thinking of, of Breaking Bad, Walter White. He was like talking about matter and he's like, what makes matter matter? And that's what I'm thinking about. When you're <laughs> okay. like, there's no matter. So I'm like, what is matter? <laughs> I believe you. Okay. Okay, Keep cool. <laughs> so <laughs> what about black holes and at the center of galaxies? Um, gargantua these black holes do not form from the death of a singular star because 
They generally range from a million to 20 billion times the mass of our sun. They are huge. Their formation will likely come from a combination of a lot of smaller black holes or from the collapse of a massive cloud of gas. And at the centre of black hole, as I mentioned, is a singularity. Let's not go there again, Frida. (laughs) If anyone listens to our Ultron episode. (laughs) Okay, so at the centre of a black hole is a singularity. This is a point at which the warping of space and time is increasing and extending down to a singular infinite point where the tidal forces are so intense that matter is squeezed and stretched out of existence. And this singularity is extending into the bulk. Okay? Yes. Still with me? Got it. Cool. Yeah. So basically, warping, this is a tricky concept to get around and it's super trippy. So just stay with it. Warping energy is stored in the black hole's warped space. This warping energy is so large that it generates the warping. Basically, the warping of a black hole is responsible for the warping of a black hole. What makes warping warping? Warp. (laughs) Now, physicists can determine everything about a black hole, except for the nature of the singularity. To learn about this, you would need to determine the laws of quantum gravity. Um, Black holes do have surfaces. The surfaces are the point where um, they're horizons or event horizons as they're commonly referred to. This is the point beyond which no information can escape. Which is why we can't learn about the singularity because we can't get any information out of the black hole. Okay. Now I want to jump to wormholes for a second. You with me? Yeah, she's been dying to do this. She's been waiting to do this. Look at her. Look at her. Space is true to you, right? <laughs> you want to get from that way to that way, but it's so far. So you fold the space, you take, then you go. Come on, make your wormhole. Thank you. Good job. That- good job. Good. Good movie. Good. Good movie. Movie scene work. I'm proud Thank of you. you. <laughs> okay. So wormholes. Now we've talked about them before briefly in Thor as Einstein Rosenbridges and again through the portal in Avengers. So let's get a little bit more detailed. What we refer to as an Einstein Rosenbridge was actually first discovered by Ludwig Flamm, a physicist in Vienna. Did you know this? In 1917. No. Just one year after Einstein finished his theory of general relativity. So... Flam found a solution to Einstein's equations that described what we now call a wormhole. It wasn't actually until 1935 that Einstein and Rosen rediscovered Flam's solution. So, general relativity actually describes different types of wormholes with different shapes and different behaviours. But Flam's Flam's wormhole is spherical and contains no gravitating matter. And when we talk about wormholes, we're normally thinking about this type of wormhole. This is what we, what we envision. So how does a wormhole form? You start with two singularities. Over time, they extend further and further into the bulk. Eventually, they meet and connect. The circumference expands, creating the wormhole. But this process is unstable, so it quickly shrinks and pinches off again, leaving two singularities behind. This process is so quick that there is not enough time for anything to travel through, and if anything tried, it would get destroyed in the pinch-off. 
So how could you stabilize a wormhole so that it doesn't pinch off? Do you do you know? Send dirty foster in it. Yes, exactly. Do you know that um, Kip Thorne actually, Carl Sagan sent him contact and asked him about it. And originally Carl Sagan was going to send her into a black hole. And uh, Kip Thorne was like, yeah, don't do that. Don't send her into a black hole. Send her into a wormhole instead. So there you go. <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> God, that's amazing. <laughs> anyway. Wow. So basically the idea of being able to stabilize a wormhole so it stays open so that you could travel through it is called a traversable wormhole. And you got to think about it in the terms of think about um, light rays. Light is being bent by large masses. So when... Uh, this is why light rays are affected by gravity uh, without imparting a force on it. People ask me this question all the time. It's like, oh, well, if, gra- if, if photons don't have mass, then how, how come they are affected by gravity? It's like, because they follow the warping of space-time. They're bent by the warping. So what happens is they're bent inwards. So as they travel through, they're bent inwards. So the light moves like towards the mass along the curves defined by the gravitational lines. If you wanted to bend your rays outwards, you would need negative mass or negative energy. So for a spherical wormhole to be traversable, it has to be threaded with a material that has negative energy, commonly referred to as exotic matter. It's a lot of topics coming in, Abby. Mm-hmm. Jesus. Well, the side note on this is that you can actually create exotic matter in the lab using two electrically conducting plates. It's known as the Casimir effect. But it's in tiny, tiny amounts. It's like nowhere near the level of what would be required to keep a wormhole open. And it's not clear if it would ever be possible, even for any like super advanced civilization, to be able to collect enough exotic matter to thread a wormhole. Um, But there has been much, much research done on this. So yeah, there we go. Okay. Now the wormhole that they travel through, okay? The wormhole, the interior part of the wormhole that they travel through is not a part of our known universe. It's moving through the bulk. Okay? Or like a three-dimensional representation of the bulk. The wormhole, the spherical wormhole they go through? Yeah. But the walls of the wormhole are part of our universe. So that's kind of what connects it. The wormhole is traveling through this like hyperspace, this bulk hyperspace, to bring to another point of... um, uh, so traveling through the four-dimensional space to bring us to another, another position point. in three-dimensional space. In our space. universe. Yes. I love that scene. It's, it's a so great cool. scene. Isn't it so beautiful the when they effects. come up on it? It's so oh. beautiful. The whole thing is amazing. It is an the, excellent the way to show it, I think. I loved it. Yeah. Okay. Just the way it changes as they... as they, as it's, like, it's like they never enter it at any point. You know what I'm saying? They just get closer to it and things sort of change. And it's such a good representation of the fact that it's not like... But there's no like uh, um, edge gradient, right. sort of sudden gradient effect. You sort of like as you approach it, you kind of slowly get into it, and it, it represents mm. that so so beautifully. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Is yes. there? Okay. Uh, I, yeah, because it was almost like they kind of orbited around it or something before kind of entering in in such a way. Yeah, I I love that. I thought it was absolutely beautiful. Now. Is there anything you want to talk about this section that we've just covered before I get into the next bit? Okay. 
So let's talk about their journey then. We're getting there. We're getting through it. <laughs> let's move to the journey. To begin with, 12 astronauts agree to go on a one-way mission to investigate these potential worlds and send back data. Over time, it will be determined which world is the best option for humanity. This was the Lazarus mission. In the end, only like it only determined three potential planets and the Endurance is then set to investigate the worlds and taking a payload of human embryos along for the ride so that some of the future of humanity is already on its way to another world and this is plan B. As they come to the other side of the wormhole, they are in the vicinity of Gargantua, a gigantic black hole. There are planets in orbit that are heated and lit by Gargantua's accretion disk and they have three promising options for a colony site. So, should we talk about this for a second before I actually talk a little bit more about the black hole and, and stuff here? Yeah, I just want to say, like, is it just going to be ten babies and brand? Yeah. How does she raise the babies? <laughs> I <know> exactly. <laughs> she's, she's, like, <laughs> she's like, oh my god, I never wanted children. Why am I stuck with this? This is my job. Yeah, I have questions about all of that and i'm sure everybody does everybody okay. has questions about that how brand was with 10 babies but okay, anyway cool. go on <laughs> maybe she does one and they and then when that one is no, older they the then first they, 10 are raised they do us. another no, one no. Uh, and then start with 10 <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then after there you just let them go you just go off you go <laughs> raise each other as children <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay so i want to see that <laughs> Well, maybe. well, we're not. If you want to talk any more about Brand and her ten babies now, then maybe we should do that because it's not going to come up again. <laughs> Brand and her ten babies. No, he went to help her. That's why All he right, went. Okay. Okay. Cool. So we're going to move on from that though, because that that's not a topic of discussion. <laughs> should that be. I have marked out. Uh, but like more specifically, did you have anything that you wanted to talk about the actual black hole? It, it, it threads so many topics together and it's very complicated, but I'm just listening. You're doing a very good yeah. job explaining. Okay. So I think the first thing really is before we talk about it a bit more, maybe what needs to be highlighted to people, because I do think we have this idea in our mind and I'm not entirely sure where it's come from. So we have this visual in our mind that like a black hole is something that, that sucks you in. That like you get, you go near it and it's just, it's destructive. It's this huge destructive force. A black hole is the same as any other mass in the universe it's the same as us orbiting our sun you orbit at a safe distance you're fine you're not going to get sucked into it you're not going to get pulled into it you just orbit around the mass so there isn't really any kind of fear in that kind of way and then because of the way that a black hole warps uh the space around it and the way that light is bent and affected by it, it creates those beautiful visuals that we get in the movie, which is all the light rays being bent around it. And some of those lights, um, some of those like photons of light that are traveling around are some that are closer in will eventually like they'll be on an orbit path that's more of an intercept path and they'll eventually be pulled into the black hole. Some are on an outwards path and they'll eventually escape it and they'll just go off on their merry way. Same as any kind of like low Earth orbit, high Earth orbit type of a thing um but in general there's a steady orbit as well so that there you have a stable orbit of light that creates a light source in order to provide um light to planets that can be habitable in the region and that's why there are habitable planets orbiting the black hole 
Are you comfortable with that? Because that's the question. Yes, I asked you that question. Why would they? Because it's like any other maths. Gotcha. Yeah. So um, now the other thing that happens, because we've talked a lot about warping, and, and I do keep saying the warping of space and time, because that is important to recognize that time is also warped by large masses. So the warping of space and time means that time slows down the closer you get to a massive body. This is the same for us on Earth. Time moves slower on Earth as it does for objects in a higher orbit Earth. And that's why it needs to be corrected for for like GPS and all that kind of stuff. So there's a description that that Kip Thorne gives in his book where I'm quoting it here. Everything likes to live where it will age the most slowly and gravity pulls it there. So... This is why they lose so much time relative to Earth years when they visit Miller's planet. Because Miller's planet is orbiting the closest to Gargantua, meaning that time is moving the slowest there. So when they go there, their one hour is the equivalent of seven Earth years. We okay? Yeah, that's a pretty cool quote. Gravity pulls you where time is the slowest. Yeah. I suppose it's like when we think about it's a things, great scene. when we think about like excited states for atoms and stuff like I mean it's standard for us to always talk about how like atoms like to be in their ground state naturally atoms will always fall down to their ground state same with um with stability like you know we always like to be in the most stable state so if you're in a metastable state you'll naturally want to end up being in the stable state so we're always looking for the lowest well the lowest point in everything to to live to live in gotcha so nice. Um, it becomes clear that neither Miller's planet or man's planet are viable options. But as a relative, relatively small amount of time passes for the astronauts, decades have now passed on Earth. And also, very sadly, which doesn't really get explored much in the movie, decades have also passed for Romilly on his own up on the freaking ship. Yeah, I love that bit. I love when they went up there and they found him and he was like, I tried sleeping, but I didn't want to like die sleeping. No. <laughs> That's so yeah. sad. That's what would have happened. It would have just, you never know. Mm. Yeah. It wasn't as dramatic. Like they aged him very subtly, didn't they? Yeah. Anyways. I suppose they didn't sad. want to take the focus away from everything else that was going on. Um, yeah. Sorry, I I know that we're staying in the recording, but I do want to jump in here for a second because someone has said something in the comments about Interstellar is cool, but not very scientifically accurate if you're close enough to a black hole. For it to change time that much, you would be past the event horizon. Um, I just want to say that everything I'm saying about the science here comes from Kip Thorne's book. And it is all very, very well explained in his book as to exactly why the time changes the way it does. And about the rotations of the planet and the spin of the black hole itself and all of that is all corrected for in such a way to make it very accurate. Just want to clarify that. Anywho, is there anything else that you want to bring up here, Frida, before we get into Gargantua? Uh, I'm curious about going into the black hole, about, you know, what would happen mm. if you went into a black hole when you get to that. That's something I'm curious about, the accuracy of, the, you know, how we went yeah. through and whether or not you could survive such a thing. Well... At the end, it's clear that the only way to save humanity is to determine the laws of quantum gravity, and this can only be done by getting data from inside the singularity. So let's go inside the singularity. Gargantua is classified as a gigantic black hole. It is 100 million times heavier than the sun. 
If it was in our solar system, it would be the size of our orbit around the sun. So like Mars would be the first planet. And it's modelled roughly on the black hole at the centre of the Andromeda galaxy. Now, Gargantua is referred to as a gentle singularity. This is a real thing. Basically, what they're saying is that the tidal gravity is very fast. It means that for a person passing through the horizon, the body is stretched and squeezed by a finite amount. But the stretching and squeezing rate is infinite. The contrast of this basically means that it's conceivable that you could cross the horizon and survive. It's not likely, but it is scientifically (laughs) conceivable. Right. That you wouldn't just be torn apart because it's so quick. These little fluctuations that are happening are like that rate it's happening at are so infinite. And it's just uh, and it's such a finite amount that it's happening that it's not enough to uh, pull you apart, to destroy you. The rate is, oh, the rate is infinite. Yeah. And it's not fast enough to pull you apart. Okay, sure. And we actually, we actually want tidal gravity to be fast. Like if tidal gravity wasn't fast, then like things like our moon would be pulled apart um, if it was slow. So you, you want you want these rates and these changes to be happening at enough of a rate that the squeezing, because that's basically what we're talking about. Objects are squeezed and stretched. So as they move around, there's like a squeezing in one direction and a stretching in the other direction. If it's really slow, then you get a lot of stretch and it might cause, like it'll cause damage. But if it's happening really fast, then you're just getting little kind of boom, 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 is the idea. Okay. So Cooper and Tara... It's not a slow stretch until you break. Yeah. Like in that other movie. Yeah. Spaghettification, yeah. That's pretty much... So Cooper and Taurus cross the horizon and the closer you get to the horizon, the slower time flows. And once inside, once you go through the horizon and there's no way that he would be able to determine the point at which he passes over the horizon, he can still send messages out to, to Brand. She can still send messages to him. It's just there will be a point where his messages don't get out anymore. She can still send messages into him. He could still receive her messages inside, but he can't send them out anymore. The reason for this is because the closer you get to the horizon, the slower time flows. And once you're inside, sorry, the reason for this is that once you're inside the black hole, once you're in the, once you pass through the horizon, you are pulled downward towards the singularity. And time also and see flows him downwards. Yeah. Yeah, and you see him start. He goes to a point where he starts to fall. Yeah, so you fall yeah. downwards towards the singularity because, again, remember we're talking about the, the, the warping. So we're being, like, the dip that is being created, the well that's being created down. So he's being pulled downwards. But as we said, the warping also affects time. So time is also being pulled downwards which means that time flows downwards. That means the future is down. So you cannot travel back up. He can't send signals back up because that's sending signals backwards in time. That's why nothing can escape the horizon. I just have to believe everything you're saying because there's no way for me to think about it or inspect it. That is pretty wicked. There is a way for you to inspect it. Read Kip Thorne's book. Yeah, I know. I think (laughs) I might have to. (laughs) 
I just but thought I thought that was a really interesting point. Like that That's idea really that because of the because of the singularity, everything is forward now. Ta- the future is in front of you. It's downwards or like not in front that's of amazing. you, but it's downwards. So anything that's backwards is the past. The past. And, and you can't why send signals escapes. to the past. Exactly. Are you saying that is why nothing escapes a black hole? Yeah. Jesus, that's cool. Because once you've passed the point, you can no longer send anything to the past. You're falling to the future. Yes. <gasps> that kind of chills, chill, like gives me the chills. <laughs> I kind of love that. So. Wow. Yeah. Luckily for Cooper, as he falls through to the singularity, some higher dimensional bulk beings have placed a tesseract for him to hang out in. Now, we've talked about a tesseract before. Yeah. Right. It's a four dimensional representation of a cube. We talked about that. We talked about the Tesseract in Avengers. Like we know that it's the yeah. it's a higher dimensional object. Yeah. So the the bulk beings or the 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 people that would exist within the bulk are four dimensional beings, and the Tesseract is a four dimensional. Um, is a and the Tesseract is a four dimensional object. So, the thing is though, for Cooper. Cooper has to be confined to a three-dimensional part of the Tesseract because he is a three-dimensional object. He cannot see the four dimensions of it, so he is in three dimensions. His atoms themselves, or atoms all exist in three dimensions. They would not exist in four dimensions. So the Tesseract, as we see it represented in the movie, has to be represented as a three-dimensional object. So he's confined to a three-dimensional portion of the four-dimensional tesseract. You with me? I thought that they made it for him like that so that it was for his three-dimensional self. Well, yes, but the actual tesseract has to be a four-dimensional object. Right, because we'll like, use the like word he's tesseract. In, he's technically being contained and confined within a four-dimensional object inside the singularity, but... Like for him to perceive where he is and everything around him, it has to, they have to create this three dimensional space for him to exist in. Yeah, it's very cool. And that's yeah. really, it's a really cool, it's a great bit. It is. I love him going through it and I love the way his voice changes. It reminds me a lot of contact, uh, but whatever. Oh, but yeah. I love the way his voice changes. I love the way he comes into it. I love, I love how, how he sort of starts to regulate himself to figure out what's going on. It's yeah. great. It's heart pumping. And the music is like, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> it's, it's really great. The whole thing is so exciting. Okay. Now, <laughs> inside the Tesseract, it is connected to a location in our space, Murph's room. But from the bulk, time in our brain is seen as another physical dimension that you can travel back and forth along. Okay, so in in fifth, so, okay, we exist in three-dimensional space with one dimension of time, overall four dimensions, right? The higher dimension in bulk space is four dimensions of space, one dimension of time. So overall five dimensions, Okay. But if you are in bulk space, looking at the brain space, so if you're in four-dimensional space, 
looking at three-dimensional space, then time looks like another physical dimension that you can travel back and forth in. Yep, I understand that. If you're yep. in the bulk, but you're looking at the brain, you'd yes. see you'd see all the different moments in time, like infinitesimally. Exactly. Infinitesimally. The thing is that Cooper can never travel to his own past. Still. So he can see the time in in the brain as a physical dimension that he can move around in within the Tesseract, but he could never travel to his own past. Cooper in the Tesseract is always in Murph's future. Right? So all the visions that he sees of Murph, 10-year-old Murph, all the other Murphs in the in the in the rooms that he looks through. Yeah. For her, him in the Tesseract is always in the future. What? No, uh... Cooper, when he's in the Tesseract, is always in the future of Murph's existence in that room. Like uh, ten-year-old Murph, ten-year-old Murph is in the room in the future for ten-year-old Murph. Cooper's in the Tesseract. Twelve-year-old Murph is in the room in the future for twelve-year-old Murph. Cooper's in the Tesseract. It's not in Murph's past. It's not in Cooper's past. It's in the future, always. For Murph, it is always in the future. But he goes there and Murph has already grown up. Murph has already grown up when he's there. In fact, probably she's 100 at the time. Yes. So him going into it is always in the future for her. I don't understand. Because he sees her as a child and everything. Yeah, forget about... He can see time as a physical dimension. He can look at time and move backwards and forwards in time. He can, yes. Yes, so he okay. can see time as another dimension and look at everything. Yes. For her, the existence yes. of Cooper being inside the Tesseract in the singularity is in her future. Her no matter future. what age she is in the room, it's in her future. Okay. Oh, okay. He's in her future. Yeah. When he's there, when she's interacting with the ghost or she perceives interacting, it's in her future. Yes. <gasps> At all points in that time, it's in her future. Right? Oh, Jesus. Yeah, this okay. This is why he's able to interact with her to a certain degree. This is why he's able to see her and she can't see him, basically. Because okay. he can see her in her room because light from her travels to him in the future. Yes. She yes, cannot okay, see yeah. him because light can never travel from him to her in the past. Yeah, okay. Yeah? But gravity can travel both ways through the bulk to the brain. So gravitational yes, signals that. can be sent to Murph from Cooper in the Tesseract. Because gravity is acting on all of that at, yes. at any given time. doesn't matter whether it's past, future. It's traveling through the bulk as it wants, interacting with anything that can be in the past or the future yeah so then he's he's using his glove to go <laughs> with his glove or he's like let's go to the coordinates yeah <sighs> he's manipulating he's manipulating the the gravitational effects 
to create these gravitational anomalies that she's then in detecting. The yeah. Look, he's now in the bulk looking at the brain. Yes, exactly. He's traveled on the way to the future. He's had to travel through the bulk. Yes. So at the point the that Tesseract has brought him the through the bulk and brought him through yeah, the at bulk this point, to Mark's He's looking room. through the brain where gravity and he can exert gravity mm-hmm. as a force. Yeah. Because he's not in our space at exactly. that point. He's had to travel through it to get to the future. Yeah. <gasps> Abyss. Okay. okay. And so then he's exerting because he can exert a force of gravity because he's a, a massive object. Yes. Is that something? Is that it? He can exert um, a force on the dust or the books as a, as an object yeah. with mass. Yeah, he can. He, and can, he can exert he can... that through the bulk. Yes. Like he's not doing anything that he couldn't do anyway. He's not like pushing a bridge. He's not pushing as far dust, as I'm he's aware. pushing books. Yeah. So he's the mass that he exerts. Well, I guess he can manipulate G, but I'm only talking about the mass he can exert in the context of Earth, which is not in anymore, or the universe that we're in, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So he can exert objects. He can exert a force, which we don't even know, because he can probably manipulate G. G's not the same. So he could probably move a bridge if, if it's the right bridge. So we, and we the right don't day. know how long he's in the Tesseract for. We just know that he's in there long enough to be able to figure out a way to communicate with Marth, get the data from TARS, and figure out a way to communicate that data through to Murph using binary code, using the watch. Okay, so then she, so he moves the watch and it's, okay, imagine that the, this data, which I still don't really know like what he's collecting and what he's putting into binary code or Morse code. And so then she is putting it on a couple of pieces of paper, which she just drops off the thing, by the way. Does she go run down and collect the paper <laughs> after that is my question. But so what is the data that he's well, we can't say what the data is plug. because the data is whatever data you would get from quantum effects occurring within a singularity, gotcha. which we can't possibly know because we can't measure it. Gotcha. So it's so the it's, it's the un, data knowable. Therefore, it's it can relating be to it's relating to things to do with quantum fluctuations. So when you look at like relativistic equations and quantum mechanics and stuff, when we talk about fluctuations. There's this thing to do with how fluctuations affect everything. So like fluctuations on the large scale can be ignored and then like fluctuations on the small scale. It depends on on how they kind of, um, I, I cannot explain this well because uh, it, ta- it would take a lot more for me to figure out how to explain this well. But basically it's just saying that um, if we can learn about how the fluctuations, how quantum of fluctuations behave within um, a region of intense mass such as I singularity I then we can figure out how basically the unification how, of, it, how it's governed right? yeah like what's the rules that govern it i understand exactly. i understand okay observations it's as simple as that you make observations yeah. and from that you can infer what's governing it if we have all the work that we have up until that point which people have done yes generations and generations having direct observations might be enough yeah to complete exactly. our view on things Understood. And also, we don't know because Murph, as you said, like Murph is 40-ish when she gets the data from the watch. And then when he is rescued and on the space station, as you said, she's an old woman. So we don't know how much work went into then the intervening decades to be able to build the to build the things and get everything to work. Yeah. To get them off. 
it, it had evolved. Like obviously the, the station that we find them on, Cooper Station, yeah, is clearly miles ahead of what the centrifuge was mm. originally. So you know they might have yeah. got them off and then continued to develop or do more. You know, getting maybe several stages or yeah. And also, if you think about it, if if they started to have a bit of success, it would have motivated a lot more people to get engaged because they only had a number of people doing it in secret because everyone was feeling like there's no hope and, you know, all that kind of thing. So I imagine at some point when they started to have success and publicized it, then all these people came back into the folds as well as resources. Yeah. And they could do a lot more. Yeah. Because it's all this this whole thing depending on whether they believed there was hope or not. Yeah. Exactly. That's true. I think, yeah, you, they would have gotten like so many more people involved in caring about that. Maybe even Tom. Okay, so let's just, let's talk about the result, which is basically just a, let's combine everything I've just said into the result of what everything that's happened. The overall result is that they travel through a traversable wormhole being held open by higher dimensional beings. This leads them to a region of the universe that has a massive black hole with planets in orbit that are potentially habitable. The black hole has a gentle singularity, allowing for an object to cross the horizon and survive. Knowing that if they could find a way to extract data from the black hole about quantum gravity, it would help solve Brand's equation. Once Cooper crosses the horizon into the singularity, he discovers a tesseract has been placed there, again by higher dimensional beings. The tesseract transports Cooper from the black hole to our solar system by travelling through the bulk. Once at our solar system, it locks onto Murph's room and we see a three-dimensional representation of the tesseract as Murph's room throughout time. The Tesseract allows Cooper to communicate with Murph through distortions to gravity and he is able to move along the timeline of that room. Meanwhile, TARS collects data from inside the Singularity and communicates this data to Cooper who translates it through Morse code or binary code to Murph. This information allows Murph to solve Brand's equations of gravity and develop a way to lift the colony ships off Earth. Once the data has been transmitted, the Tesseract closes, leaving Cooper in space in our solar system where he is picked up by the now future members of humanity. That is the science of Interstellar. I'm just, uh, can we get a... Uh, people are really... Uh, excited about your explanation you're getting a lot of people that are saying you, that it's really good that was fantastic I'm very proud like I didn't it. get everything that you said and sometimes I have to actually re-listen to the episode myself to mm-hmm. try to understand it because it's hard in real time to understand it but there were a lot of things that I didn't understand that I now understand there's a lot more that I didn't but that was amazing thank you well done thank you yeah <laughs> very proud of it <laughs> It took a lot. So it took a lot of working it out. It took a lot of rewriting it to try to get to the point of being like, okay, this is what we're talking about. And I'm glad we waited to do this movie because I'm really glad that um I'm really glad that we didn't like do this uh earlier. Like I'm glad that we didn't do this like a year ago or something. Cause it just I just think it would have been like so stressful. We've covered a lot of background in other movies that we've covered that have enabled us to kind of, for this to be a bit of an easier task to take on. Totally. 
So what I want to do is I just want to end with like a little chat about the higher dimensional being and and this kind of idea that comes up. A few things are said in the movie that makes it seem like what they're saying is like you said, he says they do it. And then Cooper's like, no, we do it. But I'm just like, who placed the Tesseract in the singularity? Was it our future selves who have found a way to access higher dimensions and manipulate them? Or was it guidance and help from a higher dimensional being? I don't see how you could conceivably say that we would be able to find a way to access four spatial dimensions and understand them when our atoms exist in three spatial dimensions. Like, how could we possibly do that? So I just don't find any way that I could believe that the idea is that it's future humans who have done this. It, to me, it has to be other dimensional beings, higher dimensional beings helping us out. Well, would there be a wormhole that was there incidentally that someone could have traveled through and then ended up in the hyperspace? Um, how do you mean? Well, if you ended up traveling there because you had to go through hyperspace because you were in a wormhole, then that's how you could get there in the first place. And maybe yeah. over time, it's like with the mushrooms, it's like it's like humans eating mushrooms slowly changed us. So maybe like humans going through wormholes slowly made us more adaptable. Or computers who aren't limited. Yeah, somebody just said, Mitch just said in the chat there, uh, quantum AI integrated humans. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. That's it. Mitch has got just the answers. Chuck some AI at it. <laughs> Not just AI for that quantum AI. Gotta put quantum in front of it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I like the idea that it's a higher dimensional being. I like the Tiny idea that there's these four dimensional beings bots. that are looking out for us and they're like, look at these three yeah. D little ones. Um let's help them Where out. It, I know who it was. Who was it? It's God. Stop yourself right now. Get out of here. Get out. <laughs> <laughs> but like, look, seriously, everything that makes up our universe exists in three dimensions. Atoms, subatomic particles, forces, fields. Everything that creates us is confined to our brain. Any being in another dimension would be made of something entirely different. Um... And because gravity is the only thing that can potentially traverse other dimensions, um, then, like, I just don't, yeah, I just don't see it. I don't see it, man. I think, yeah, we four-dimensional higher beings did it all. That's my opinion on it. And I think humans got addicted to traveling through wormholes. I think that there was a wormhole that was discovered at some point. Humans got addicted to traveling through it. It became like drugs. And eventually we slowly evolved into being able to stay in hyperspace for longer and longer. But like, dude, how long did you stay in hyperspace? And it was like 6.8 milliseconds. And it was like, dude, I just got to 74. And then over generations and generations, humans were like, it was like the ice, you're cracking the ice and like going in the ice and being like, I did two minutes. I did two minutes and then you're like, I've done seven minutes. And I think it was more like slowly we just evolved and that's it. Okay. And that's my cool. theory because you can make anything up in this whole space because nobody knows. <laughs> you can just say anything. And then we also had to randomly send it back in time as well. Like that's the part that we're all ignoring too. I suppose because when you're in the bulk, you can travel because time's just another dimension for the brain. So yeah, so they traveled in time for them, back to it, us it to go. Be- Time could be a, a valley 
for, th- for them, time is like a, fa- a valley. They, they, you could, uh, a mountain. A hill that they could climb or a canyon they could fall into. Yeah. Um, okay, shall we move to our favorite part of every episode? What the Right, so Frida, what is your what the fuck point of the movie? Raising the bait. I have one, two, three, four. Sweet Jesus, what? Five. But we've already mentioned some. All right, already. okay. I've got one. <laughs> okay, you go. What's yours? No, tell me yours if you've got a bunch of them. Give me some little ones. How did she raise all the babies? How did oh, they yeah, end okay. up getting food? <laughs> also, after three hours of incredibly dense science, the answer is love. That's the fucking answer. Love is the answer. We've been in through the densest science movie in the history. And what did they give us? Uh, love. Like, uh, I don't know, like love. It, it could be the thing. My gut instinct. It's my gut instinct that tells me to go. It's like, this is the densest science movie in the history of film. What the fuck? Also, what happened to Tom? He doesn't ask. Tom, what why happened is to Tom my never son? Where's Tom? Tom Murph, never gets Murph, mentioned. Murph, he sees Murph, his daughter. Murph, you have a He's son like, as well. Hey, Murph, wait. What happened to my son? And even when he comes and back final, and he sees old Murph, where is Tom? What happened to Tom? They slowly choked on the dust. You know when Tom's son yeah. was like, was like, <coughs> it's the dust. They but wait, just slowly died. But also when he goes back and he sees old Murph and like just, I'm sorry, that moment where he comes back after everything he's been through, her ignoring him, refusing to talk to him, not sending him, accusing him of leaving her behind. He solves everything, helps her, helps her solve everything, finally gets home, this distraught man. And she's just like, I have my kids here with me now. Leave. Leave. So says you. Says you. That's why is it up to you, bitch? Just go away. She's annoyed at him, like for for decades, and then she's like, "I don't need you no more. I have my family here." It's unbelievable. Shade. It's just like you. Absolute... Is that your what the fuck? No, no, no. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. I it's don't like that one. either. I don't like that he's just sent away to be like a lonely spaceman. <laughs> Okay. But that's not even my actual what the fuck. What else have you got? We've already discussed it, but why couldn't they just be on the ships but on Earth if it was a biosphere? Yeah. That's it. That's my actual what the okay. fuck. Okay, All what's right. your what my the fuck? What the fuck. <laughs> this one, this drives me absolutely crazy. And it took me a while to really clock it. But now that I've really, now that I've clocked this, I'm like, I'm actually driven mad by it. Miller's Planet. They go down to the surface to get Miller and investigate their data. It's a big deal because one hour on this planet is seven Earth years. They have an entire discussion around it, right? They get there and Miller is dead. They say she would have only landed a few hours before and the data is just a repeat echo transmitted. What the data they've been getting for all these years is just a repeat echo because she would have only landed a few hours before because of the massive change in time, right? Um, Then they would have known before they went down that she would have just gotten there a few hours before. So how could she have years of data transmitting? Surely they would have noticed something's wrong. Oh, wait, this planet has these massive time changes. An hour down there is seven years here. And if Miller left like 14 years ago, then Miller's only been down there for two hours. 
So where's all the data coming from? So maybe there's something Sorry, wrong. Right. Red flags everywhere. Why, Why the fuck would you go down there? Why did they know she just arrived? Why would they know that? Well, because they realized when they got her data. Why? Didn't they get down there? It and echoed. then she was like dead. And then there was the tidal wave and all this stuff. And then they were like, oh, well, she would have actually only just arrived. They say it in it. They say that she, um, yeah. she would have just landed a few hours before. And the data that we've been getting is just a repeated like echo. Yes, they only know that once they're there, though. But once they get to the place yes they yes. know that one hour on that planet is seven earth yes. years oh before, before they, they there, go they down know. they know before that they, they make there, the decision ramali goes fuck? off and they, they still know, go they down they have the discussion they still go down they have the discussion why go would you down. do that why what would you make fuck? that decision why would they do that well my god basic arithmetic Exactly. Like, why? It makes two no hours. Sense. She's been there for two hours. You would be like, this is a bit suspect. Maybe we shouldn't go down there. <laughs> they shouldn't have gone down there. Okay. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Thank you. Yeah. There's Thank a lot. Abby. Every movie has a new... what the fuck. Every Abby. movie, no, no matter how good I'm sorry, it is. Sorry. There's a there's a lot of that kind of stuff in this movie. Yeah. There's a lot. I'm well, sorry. I mean, there's definitely a lot of stuff that like Christopher Nolan, like obviously, I mean, we've said it before. We're perfectly fine with movies doing things for the plot, for the story, like, you know, taking taking artistic license um, for the purpose of the story. Like, that's completely fine. There's no issue there. That's not the problem. The problem is not making sense. Yeah. It's not about artistic license. It's like a lot of stuff that happens like the plot doesn't make sense the science is cool the visuals are cool but the plot doesn't make sense when you watch it you're like hey what what and then you're like you know what? it doesn't matter because mm. i it, it, it doesn't matter but you know it's like you don't it, it doesn't it doesn't reward thinking too much about the plot you know yeah okay it's so fine. okay let's final go. verdicts final verdicts does the movie pass the sam's test Annoyingly, it does not. I don't think it no, does. No, it doesn't. This movie does not pass the Sam's test. I actually have a bit of a thing. I've thought about it a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, there's one thing about that all the, like the only explanation that none of, either of these women could be scientists is that their father's a scientist. Okay, fine. Oh, yeah. That's like one certain crime with female scientists is that like the only reason that they could possibly be make sense is because it's from their father. Okay, so both of them are like that. But he clearly uses the women to play the like to play up the emotional core of the film. Yeah. I don't think Nolan really knows how to use women, to be honest. Like he's got a bit like he's funny, like he doesn't really know how to use them somehow. But he definitely is like very clunkily uses them to be like the emotional core of the film and that's not bad in of itself i just don't think he does it very well i think it's awkward and it's clunky and like her with the histrionics and this one with the love and the gut feeling it's just like but um, i actually weirdly were watching the return of the king um Mm. watching that the other night and miranda otto who plays eowyn theoden's daughter and she's like there because of her father and she's a woman that clearly holds up an emotional core of the return of the king, but it's so good. And I'm like, why is this good? I feel like with that, I think it's because maybe her character has like an arc. It's like not exactly what her father wants her to do. Maybe because she's just a superior actress. Maybe it's the music. Maybe it's the combination. But I'm like, you can use women to play up the emotion and they can be daughters of people that are important. That's fine. But I don't think it's, I think it's done weird and clunky here. I don't think it's good. 
Like, I, don't, I have a problem with any of that on principle. That's what I'm saying. But I just think it's like, it's, ugh, it's weird. It's weird. I, I think the like problem it. is it depends on what type of story you're trying to st- trying to tell. And I guess these ones are space stories. And it's going to be more about the visuals and the effects of what happens in the, the space opera saga of everything over kind of um, character development or connections in with the story to try to create something. Like that's where the focus is going to go. And, I, and it's always going to be a case sure. of where I guess like actors are just going to like throw in what they what they can maybe in some way i want to say that kubrick was space odyssey made space mm. cold and distant and made it about the bigger concepts and the wider space and intentionally drew our attention away from the characters but he left us so much time to like think about it like a lot of how he made the movie made us sit and and think about these bigger ideas i think with chris nolan is it's so like crazy honestly it doesn't really give us a lot of opportunity to really think about our place among the stars because there's so much going on and there's all these characters and there's all this drama so if you don't want characters and you don't want drama then remove the drama you can't have it both ways you can't have a plot which pretends it's character driven where someone is driven and motivated by character reasons by the daughter by the father by the father by the daughter blah, 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 and then not have the payoff and then say well it's all about space you have to pick a lane and i think chris nolan tries to do way too much at once i love what he's accomplished i think some of this stuff is just going to echo in cinema history and it's super beautiful but in terms of like like he has movies where the character stuff is much more compelling, like the okay. like with the, the with what he did with Dark Knight or okay. Batman Begins, like the okay. idea of like he really but, had a compelling w- to combine. But I think this is it's he I I adore him for doing this. I think it's amazing and it's like so aspirational and he gets so much done, but it does fall flat with the characters are weird and not normal and it doesn't make sense and I don't get what motivates them and I'm confused. But I forgive all of it because wow. Okay, so the answer was no, it doesn't pass the Sam's test. No, shut up. Okay. I talk a lot. <laughs> no, you can talk a lot, but I'm the one who has to edit this episode. Fine, it doesn't pass the Sam's test. <laughs> did it pass? Here comes the science. Yes. Yes, of course, of course it did. Final verdict. Yeah, it has to be like a 4.7. That's a good. Yeah, no. that's good for you. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. All right, now I she's going to backtrack. She's got to backtrack quickly. She I can't, know. She can't be nice about things. <laughs> I can't, she can't be nice about the movies I pick. Four <laughs> and point four. Oh, dropped it down. What dropped it down those point three? Because a lot doesn't make any okay. fucking sense. <laughs> like, I appreciate everything you've said and I want to honor that, but a lot of it doesn't make sense. Like, the what, my what the fucks. For me, it's. But, a- uh, but, but, yeah. It's a? Four. Four. Oh, cool! I got higher than you. I don't know what's going on. I think it's a nice, Why like four? I, I think it's a great movie, and I think the science is excellent. And now that I've spent all this time going through the science and like all this detail and knowledge that I feel like I now have, I am like super chuffed with. But like, um, at the same time, I'm like, yeah, it's all right. Oh, I can hear myself a lot coming through you now. Maybe I'm a bit loud. Anywho, that's fine. Okay, we have finished. We have done the science of Interstellar. Frida, what is our next movie? I want to do. I want to do the thing. I'm in the mood. Okay, okay well we're then, doing exactly. The thing. Then that's perfect. That's all you need to know. I mean, okay, you're gonna hate my next, next choice, so it's fine. <laughs> okay, we're make doing yourself the thing. happy now. 
<laughs> the thing is so cool. All right, great. It's doing the thing. I'm in okay. the mood of some horror. And I want horror. All right. Uh, I need some horror films. None of this sentimental bullshit. <laughs> we okay. want people's arms being cut off. All right. Okay. The fly. More of okay. that. Okay. So in two weeks time, we have The Thing. Some Frida classic body horror, just the way she likes it. <laughs> right. If you'd like to join us in two weeks time, please do give us a rating. If you have time, subscribe to the podcast on your chosen podcast player. Um, if you want to get in contact with us, you can catch us well on TikTok at Science of the Movies or uh, you can send us an email, movies at gmail.com and uh, we are on Instagram as well. But do people use Instagram anymore? I don't know. I Anywho. Do. Uh, yeah. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.